Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton's economy is hurting, according to a report from the Conference Board of Canada, but it also says the city is poised for a pretty strong recovery. We'll give you the details. We are having our weekly discussion with employment lawyer Andrew Goldberg. Today we discuss record job losses, layoffs, hiding the extent of the damage, and federal workers ordered to ignore the cheating and the CERB claims. Hmm. And Doug Ford says there will be an announcement tomorrow regarding the phase one of the reopening. However, Dr. David Williams says we're not there yet. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Hamilton's economy and recovery were topics of conversation with the Conference Board of Canada. And, uh, well, there's bad news here. I guess we all kind of figured that was going to be happening. Uh, but there may be uh, a light at the end of the tunnel. Joining us to talk about this uh, assessment is uh, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Good morning, Marvin. How are you today? Fine, thank you, Bill. You have a low benchmark when you say it's not snowing and it's sunny, therefore it's a good day, but it's a better day than we imagined. Lower expectations. Exactly. I mean, the, you know, May 11th, and it was snowing like crazy. It's insane. So here we are. Uh, this is kind of like sitting down with your doctor after you've done all these tests on it and say, right. well, what's the verdict here? Uh, it's been pretty rough. We took a, a gut punch, I think, as they say uh, in the economic world, uh, and the Conference Board of Canada, I think, reflects this. The, the, the numbers of snapshot of where we are right now is pretty grim, but uh, we, we, I want to do that, but also talk about the prognosis going forward, Marvin. Sure. Well, let's start with the numbers. Uh if, if these numbers were just for Hamilton and we were the outlier, in other words, everybody else was doing just beautifully sunny, and here we are, our economy might be shrinking by 3.2%, boy, that would be terrible news. But this is basically news that we're all in the same boat. I know the spectator story, uh, uh, people can go there and, and see some of the details, made a big point of saying, well, you know, Toronto's only going to shrink 2.4%, and Ottawa's shrinking only 3%, and here Hamilton's projected to shrink at 3.2%. But I would remind you that all of these are projections. They aren't realities. They are projections. Someone put them into a model, cranked through some numbers, and I don't know if you could actually tell the difference between a 3.2% drop and a 3% drop. We all knew this was happening because of, of COVID-19. Now, the, the bright light you talk about is because we don't think this is a, a permanent change, we think this is a temporary change brought on by the pandemic, that at some point we're going to get the green light to start to reopen, and eventually we'll be back to close to where we were. So if I, if I drop you down by 10 points from 100 to 90, and then you climb from 90 back to 100, guess what? You get a lot of growth, uh, and that growth is going to happen in the latter part of this year, and then a lot of it in 2021. So, yes, bad news that our economy is going to shrink in 2020, but the good news is we'll probably bounce back and regain all of that in 2021. All of this, by the way, Bill, and we have to always remind people this assumes that there is no second wave, that this is a one-time drop and a one-time recovery, that we're not going to bounce back and forth between these states. And that's why, and I know you're going to have a guest on later to talk about this, getting the recovery right, reopening, getting that at the right time, not too fast, not too slow, as Goldilocks said, just right. That's Mm -hmm. the challenge now for government. 
Unemployment rate, uh, which is a, a number that uh, always is intriguing to people, and I don't know if it's easily interpreted, Marvin, because you know when the I know when you know when they do this, when Stats Canada does the employment numbers here, they actually include a much broader area than just the city of Hamilton proper. Right. But uh, it went from four point five percent to seven point four percent, and again, how do we stack up against other jurisdictions? I mean, because everybody took a hit here. Yeah. Well, everybody did. So there's a couple of couple of notes about unemployment. Uh, we actually did better. Hamilton's unemployment rate is one of the great mysteries in our province because it remains so low. Uh, in Canada, the unemployment for the month of April is around 13%. So that if we're at 7.5, even if that's out a little bit and it's 8, why are we doing so well? And unfortunately, it's because we have a large group of people who are just not looking for work. Most of these are people who found themselves unemployed in their 50s and said, well, I'm just going to take early retirement. They're capable of working but can't find work, and they're just not looking for it. The other reason why the number is better than I thought it was going to be, I actually thought unemployment in Canada in the month of April was going to hit 17 18%. And the reason why it's only 13% is that Stats Canada removed 1 million people from their statistics nationwide who are furloughed. That means they had a job, they don't have a job at the moment, but they're also not looking for a replacement job. They're just in taking the time off, and then they'll be called back. If you throw the furloughed people back into the number, you do get an unemployment rate of 17 18%, some of the worst numbers we've seen since the Great Depression. But again, the reminder here is this is not being caused by economic factors. The housing market has not collapsed. The banking has not collapsed. Our economic fundamentals are fine. It's all due to coronavirus, which we do, again, believe is going to be this one-time uh, hit to our economy, but that we will bounce back. And we've already begun to see green shoots and build tomorrow, uh, as you, you have to be interrupted, obviously, by people like the Prime Minister and the Premier. The Premier has promised that tomorrow, Thursday, he's going to talk a little bit more about Phase 1. Probably not going to uh, start it this weekend. This is our long weekend, but probably towards the end of next week is when we might enter phase one, and that's another one of those green shoots around this recovery. When you talk about the furloughed employees, though, Marvin, that that's a, a bit of an anomaly because, I mean, you know, a lot of them, I, I know for a fact some of them are airline employees because they've all had a rough time lately. But how quickly are those industries going to bounce back? It's not as if everybody's going to get the call back by the end of this month. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Bill, the best way I can explain this to you is that uh, I, uh, most provinces are talking about three to five steps in the recovery, and that the first workers to come back will be those where social distancing will be the easiest to do. So, for instance, tomorrow I suspect the pre Premier is going to say, well, you know, I, I let the marinas get ready, I let the golf courses get ready, guess what, maybe next Wednesday you can reopen and play golf because... You have a relatively small number of people over a very, very big space, and social distancing is quite easy. The last industries to reopen will be those where social distancing is the hardest. Airlines are a great example of that. You can't make money flying half-full planes, or at least not at the fares they had been charging. If you double the fares, you can have the number of people. Um, sports. You know, a lot of questions about the Ticat season. Will it even get off the ground? Will it even happen? How do you fill in a a football stadium, and yet maintain social distancing. Uh, a festival, we've already heard news that this year the Canadian National Exhibition is going to be uh, cancelled because they just can't figure out how they can operate it and be socially distanced. So 
we're going to have waves, and if you work in an industry which is relatively easy to have social distancing, you'll get called back earlier. Others will happen later in June, and I think it'll even take until July before some of these, like the airlines, will come back. Uh, and then even when they do come back, there may be rules not just governing you as an employee, but me as a patron or a consumer. For instance, you know, masks may be the new normal that we'll all have to have a package of them in the car. Yes, when we're driving the car, we don't need to wear the mask because we're just in there by ourselves. But the minute we're going to go into a social setting, we're going to have to strap a mask on just to make sure we're not passing things on to other people. These may be the, the, the policies that we adopt as we reopen over the next couple of months. How's that going to affect consumer confidence, which is something that you've always talked about? It's one thing to open the doors and say, we're here, we're here. Uh, if nobody comes through, uh, you know, it doesn't do a whole lot of good for anybody. And, and right now, there's a lot of trepidation about going into a restaurant, a lot of trepidation about flying. I'm, I'm sure we all saw that picture the other day of, uh, I think it was an Air Canada flight or, or WestJet, I forget which one. You know, and they talked about how we're going to do all the social separation and we're probably going to leave the, the middle row of seats. This place was, that the plane was jammed. I mean, the, there was no empty seat anywhere on that. Uh, I don't know if I'd get on a plane like that and said, I don't think so. Uh, you know, the, the, we've, we've got to have a sense of confidence that, yeah, this is a safe place right now, and uh, I'm not so sure that a lot of us are there yet. No. Well, there was a, a, a public opinion poll out yesterday that said 50%, 5-0, of Canadian consumers were afraid of going out, that when the all-clear was sounded, they'd be thinking very carefully about going out. Now, I think we've got two competing things here, Bill. On one hand, I, I've studied consumers all of my life, and I know when you tell a consumer there's something they cannot do, that then becomes the thing they most desperately want to do. <laughs> so when I tell you you can't go to a restaurant, well, boy, I really, really want to go to a restaurant now. So they will want to go out. The question is, are they going to feel confident? So how do you get the confidence back? It'll be by what we call early adopters. So those first people who go out, and they visit, say, your favorite restaurant, whatever restaurant that happens to be. They'll go, they'll enjoy their meal, or they'll do whatever, and then they're likely going to write an online review. And more than at any other time, people are going to take a look at these early reviews and see what they say. If the first consumers venturing out say, boy, this was so smooth and so slick and I felt so safe and so confident, that will cause others to follow behind them. If, on the other hand, the first consumers go, well, they're not taking this seriously at all. Nobody was wearing masks. Nobody was doing this. Then that's going to scare people. And so confidence is something that can be lost in a heartbeat. It takes a long time to win it back, but it can come back based on the experiences. Bill, I, I participated. The School of Business has had a couple of webinars. We did one with the Burlington Chamber of Commerce. We're going to do another one with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce next week. And something I've been trying to explain to business owners is the word empathy. Mm -hmm. During this difficult time, one needs, if you're a business owner, to show empathy to two groups of people, your employees and your customers. We need both of them to feel confident about coming back. We need both of them to sh be shown that you are taking all the steps, maybe even going above and beyond the call of duty, because you have empathy for both of them and the fears that they have. And if you can do that, you will be rewarded. If you choose not to do that, and you remember... It was a little over a year ago when the uh, minimum wage went up to $14 and certain Tim Hortons franchisees said, well, then I'm not going to pay you for a break and I'm not going to give you these benefits. And I thought how, how tone deaf these people were because they showed no empathy at all. 
And the response was, well, then I don't need your coffee. I'm going to stay away from your franchise yeah. if that's the way you treat people. This is another test. We are all being tested. And if you take the high ground, those consumers will remember and they will come back. Yeah, and I know there's some serious concerns about the hospitality slash restaurant industry. We're going to get into that a little bit later on in the program. Uh, I, yesterday, I was uh, mentioning an interview I saw with uh, Tom Colocchio, who's a uh, master chef, of course, anybody that watches that on TV. And, and he was saying, and restaurateur as well, he said, you know, what's the dining experience going to be like? You know, if you're loyal to Restaurant X, you're, you're probably going to go there when they're open again. First of all, there'll be half the seating. Uh, your your wait staff are probably going to have masks and gloves on. The bartender is going to have masks and gloves on. Uh, you know, there there may be an odor of disinfectant in the air. I mean, you, you don't know. And then, so they may go once or twice and say, oh, this is just not the same way. So they're really going to have to be careful. There's going to be a lot of work and planning has to go into this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and also remember, the, the, the standards that we need when we very first open may get relaxed over time. I'm not for a moment suggesting that we want dirty restaurants or unclean, unhealthy restaurants, but that extra layer of precaution, the gloves, the masks, the, the constant bleaching of things, could be relaxed a little bit as we get to a new normal. Sure. We, we just don't know what that new normal is. And I, I teach in an industry, you asked about industries to reopen, in a way, we're kind of lucky that we're now in the summer term at McMaster. We don't we offer classes, but we don't offer a large number of classes. But at this point, we haven't got a clear vision of what our fall is going to look like. Mohawk College has said that 70% of their classes are moving online. Those that where there's a lab component or something like that, they can't move them online. They'll still be offered face-to-face. I've been asked to plan at this point for every eventuality, everything from totally online to totally face-to-face, and and middle steps in between because we just don't quite know what that new normal will be but again every step that gets taken in this recovery is going to we'll learn from it and it will adjust our expectations and at some point we will get as close as we can to what we were back in february but just how fast and what those steps will be just still too early to tell that's again why to tie it back to the beginning the conference board report, it's a fun thing that they've done to project the future, but their crystal ball is no clearer than anybody else's. And so we're all going to be in this boat, and hopefully we'll rise as the as the tide rises together. The one takeaway from this that I, I thought was rather encouraging, though, is what they said is that the, the Hamilton economy especially was in pretty good shape before all this stuff happened. Right. And uh, it's like if you work out every day and, and you you know you have to have surgery or something like that, you bounce back a lot faster if you're in shape to begin with. So that bodes well. We just don't know when it's going to start. Right. Just a quick note on Hamilton's economy. This, this bothers many people, but Hamilton's economy today is very much based on the public sector, and the public sector has not taken the same hit as the private sector whether it's universities or hospitals or, or public institutions, they've not furloughed workers. They've been able to pay them, keep them on the payroll, keep it going. So although there is a reduction in economic activity, we are probably better off than a place maybe like Oshawa that relies a lot more on the private sector for employment. That's, again, why we think the bounce back will happen faster in Hamilton and probably go a little deeper in Hamilton. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. As always, Marvin, thanks so much for this. Uh, stay healthy. We'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Time for our uh, weekly uh, employment segment. Andrew Goldberg joins us today uh, up for discussion. Lots of things today. Uh, Record job losses, how layoffs are hiding the extent of the damage. 
Uh, federal workers ordered to ignore cheating on CERB claims. A lot of things going on, and a lot of people are getting called back now. We're hoping for that call back in the next few days uh, from their place of employment. And, uh, well, let's face it, the, the landscape has changed considerably, and I'm sure a lot of people have questions. So we're pleased to welcome Andrew Goldberg, employment lawyer and associate at Sanfiro to Mark and LLP, employmentlawyer.ca. Uh, back to the Bill Kelly Show. How are you doing this morning, Andrew? Oh, I'm well, Bill. How are you doing? <laughs> One more day. Yeah, we'll keep it rolling here. Uh, we've got a bunch of things I wanted to get to because our listeners, uh, I think, are enjoying the segment, and they, uh, they pop these questions and, and things to me every now and then. I just kind of stack them up here. Uh, one is from a guy who did get a call back uh, just a, a couple of days ago, I'm told. Uh, rather lengthy here, so I'm just going to get right to the bones of it here. It's, it's Canadian Tires, the company, but and I don't know which location it is here, in the, it's somewhere in the Hamilton area. I uh, got called back, and uh, the employee who got the phone call said, well, what are we doing here about, like, you know, PPEs, personal protection equipment? I mean, they said, well, we're not supplying that. He said, well, then it's not a safe work environment. The guy said, well, then don't come back to work. And that seemed to be the end of the phone call. Uh, does the employee in a situation like this not have a responsibility to make this a safe workplace? Or the employer, rather? Yeah, the employer. Yeah, so <clears throat> we've talked quite a few times on the show in the past, the employer absolutely has an obligation to ensure that its workforce is safe. Uh, if the employee has concerns about safety and those concerns have merit, then the employer should definitely definitely be working with that employee to alleviate those concerns, especially if it's something as simple as PPE. Like I, It's hard to fathom that we're now you know, over eight weeks, ten weeks into this uh, kind of really the... Um, the, the depth of this COVID and, and the impact that it's having and, and something so simple as providing masks or gloves, that should be a gimme for, for any employer. So if the employee has concerns, any employee can contact the Ministry of Labour and, and request that an investigation is done to ensure that the workplace is safe. They will then send in an investigator to kind of assess whether it is in fact safe or not safe. And that investigator will make a decision as to whether that employee should be at work or if the employer should be doing anything further uh, to ensure that that employee is safe. And if you're an individual and you're concerned about doing that, I mean, most people aren't going to go run to the Ministry of Labor and, um, you know, share their concerns because they're fearful of what their employer might think if they do that. Sure. But those people, rest assured, your job is protected. You cannot be, your employment can't be terminated or you can't be disciplined because you try to ensure that your workplace is safe. If that happens, then that's a big no-no for employers. That could get them in big trouble and uh, lead to fines and also lead to more money in employees' pocket. If they're terminated, uh, they'd get a severance and then some. So if that person has any concerns and the employer doesn't seem to be doing anything about it, you know, contact the Ministry of Labor, let them know of your concerns, and, and they'll take it from there. Is the employee... Uh within their rights to ask about stuff like this? And I mean, you know, in their euphoria that, hey, they're called, I'm going back to work, this is great, I'm getting a paycheck again. But, you know, at, so, at some point you've got to say, well, what's the, what's the workplace environment? I guess it really depends on, uh, I mean, that's a, we're talking about a commercial enterprise here, and at some point it's going to be restaurants, and we have to wonder about the environment that those people are going to go back in. We keep talking about what's it going to be like for customers. Uh, obviously the way it's going to look for employees is going to matter too. I mean, they have to feel safe in their environment. Yeah, absolutely. It's very uh, well within an employee's rights to question, um, you know, how safe the work environment is. That's something they should be doing. I mean, there's kind of a line in the sand. <clears throat> it's going to be an objective test. You're going to look at, you know, has the employer done everything they can? Have they followed all of the government's 
guidelines with respect to ensuring a safe workplace for the employees. Now, at some point, an employer might do everything that they can be doing and doing everything that the government's told them to do. And some individuals just still might not feel safe about going back. In that case, that could be problematic. Those employees still need to go back. But if there's more that an employer can do to ensure that the workplace is safe, absolutely that uh, they should be um, looking into, you know, implementing any kind of processes, whether it be giving out PPE as, as the one uh, individual who wrote in from Canadian Tire had concerns about, or mm-hmm. sanitary stations, hand-washing stations, ensure that, you know, different employees are X feet apart. I think the one thing I see more than ever in the few times that I do <laughs> venture into the real world is uh, <laughs> kind of the, the plexiglass um barriers that they'll put in front of cashiers or things mm-hmm. like that and divide people up so there's even i've even heard stories about people have gotten into ubers or something and they the uber driver has put kind of saran wrap almost as a divider between the front half and the back half of the car so there's lots of things out there that are that are happening and um i think everyone wants to be safe for the most part so Quite frankly, we don't hear as much about this as you would have expected. I think everyone's doing their best to work together to ensure that the workplace is safe, so that is a good sign. With uh, employment lawyer Andrew Goldberg, uh, as we talk about uh, heading back to work, an awful lot of us. Uh, From uh, Linda, is there a difference between laid off and furlough? Heard both expressions, I I guess from a legal standpoint, and and well, there's I guess a number of things. uh, Are they synonyms, or is there a difference there, Andrew? Oh, furloughed is is a word typically used in the states. It's not a it's not a word that has um, that's used very colloquially or often here in Canada. I think the Employment Standards Act, um, which is kind of the legislation that governs everyone's rights in the in the employment environment, it refers to a temporary layoff as a temporary layoff. So that's the word that um, is kind of used in Canada for the most part. Uh, there's no real fundamental difference between the two. It's they're both situations where an employer is unilaterally um, deciding that you'll be off work for a temporary period of time and not be paid and to return at some point in the future. In Canada, the difference between Canada and, and most parts of the states is that in Canada you must be recalled within a certain period of time, and if you are not recalled within that period of time, being either 13 weeks or 35 weeks if your benefits are continued, uh, your employment will be considered terminated. So uh, with the temporary layoffs, uh, they can't last forever. They're only able to last for a specific period of time, after which point you're owed severance and uh, the relationship is done. There's another phrase here that I wanted to get into because we've heard this an awful lot. And, and again, this is something, depending on the employer, uh, that the, the, the people being called back may have to fear on. It's, it's called tracking, tracking employees. Uh, we know all about testing. You know, some companies are doing that, some not so much. But uh, it would behoove them to have some sort of a program, I guess, at some point down in the future. But some of them are actually going to the point of, of tracking, which uh, I... I I guess the, the short version of that, the short explanation for that is basically they want to know who you're hanging around with and where you're going to find out whether or not you're asymptomatic or whether you're carrying the virus and, and who you may be spreading it to. Uh, we're getting into a kind of a human rights era here, or, or opportunity here. I mean, I, some people just don't like that idea that somebody is asking that or asking to track them for them. Yeah, I mean, that opens the floodgate to a lot of concerns. In, in Canada specifically, 
uh, Canadian government and the courts, they've shown time and time again that privacy is something that will be respected above all else. Uh, all else. So, you know, you see tracking in other countries that have been impacted by uh, COVID from the government level. I mean, that's not something that's happening in Canada. But from an employer perspective, you know, an employer has, you know, certain rights to implement some tracking and monitoring features, uh, but, but those have to be tied to the work. So, you know, those can be done during working hours, kind of to, to you know, for people working at home, employers might have concerns, well, what is this person really doing? We have no, you know, when you come, that's probably the main reason that individuals will continue coming to a physical office is because it creates a sense of accountability. It's, it's kind of hard if you have no tracking measures in place as an employer to really get an understanding of what your employees are doing at, you know, during the eight-hour day that you're paying these individuals, right? Mm-hmm. But when it comes to, you know, I think it would be quite concerning if there was, if an employer said, well, we're putting this, we'd like for you to download this app in your phone, and this app is going to tell us everywhere you've been at every point in time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I think that definitely overstretches the bounds of what an employer is able to do. Um, so if an individual has concerns that an employer is trying to track what where they are at all points in time, not just during the nine-to-five workday or whatever they're contracted to work, uh, that could be certainly quite concerning and, uh, you know, might give rise to a potential, um, you, you know, you can even potentially maybe treat your employment as being terminated in those circumstances and go after your employer uh, for some severance and, and some additional money as well. So it, it really is going to be dependent on the situation, but definitely if an employer is looking to implement something that's a 24-hour-a-day thing, that's very concerning. I, I mean, I have been reading... There are a reading, for example, Apple has been trying to come up with a new kind of tracking app that doesn't provide um, kind of specific and detailed location data. So it's not going to tell an employer where someone is and at what time, but it could just prompt to them, hey, listen, this person has been in the vicinity of another person who had COVID. And like that's kind of the extent of the data. So it would be interesting to see kind of how the developers of these tracking apps are putting measures in place to ensure that employers are only receiving the information that they need to receive. And that information is simply, has this person been in contact with another person that's reported uh, to have had COVID? The employer doesn't need to know exactly where all those people have been and when, 24 hours a day. That's certainly excessive. Okay, so the tracking may be an extreme example of, of new protocol, but I've I got to assume, Andrew, that a lot of these businesses now, as they start to bring people back in uh, with whatever phase of, the, of this recovery we're going to be in, are going to have certain protocols. Uh, as an employee, are you bound to follow these new protocols? I mean, this is this is not the, the situation that you were in before all the COVID stuff happened. Uh you know, you have to wear gloves, Andrew. You have to wear a mask. Oh, I, I can't wear a mask. You know, I, got, I just can't do that. I want to do the job, but I can't wear a mask. Well, uh, are you putting your employment at risk when you do something like that? I think certainly you are putting your employment at risk as long as the uh, the policies and protocols in place are reasonable. I mean, you know, at the outset of this call, we talked about an individual who, you know, wanted masks and gloves from his employer to ensure that the workplace yeah. is safe. You know, it's very clear that employees are entitled to be at a safe workplace. Now, part of that is, uh, 
you know, they they have the right to be safe. If other employees are jeopardizing their safety by being reckless um, in in their failure to abide by what are reasonable policies and procedures uh, regarding the use of PPE or this, that, or the other, I, I mean, absolutely, it could be problematic. You could be sent home if if there's a genuine policy in place that you need to wear a glove, uh, gloves and you need to wear a mask, and there's no real reason that you shouldn't, other than you don't like it or or something of that nature, um, definitely that's an employer. If, if the employer doesn't think their workplace is safe because you aren't abiding by the policies and procedures, then they could easily send you home. You can even be subject to discipline uh, for failing to abide by the policies. The, you know, you keep your, the listeners have to keep in mind that if, you know, most of these protocols, they only work if everyone's doing it, right? As soon as yeah. you have one or two or three people that are going off on their own and, and not abiding by these things, all you need to really is one person in the workplace to contract COVID and the thing spreads like wildfire. So I think an employer is going to have great discretion in ensuring that people do abide by these policies. And quite frankly, um, like most things that we've talked about to date, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure. I don't even think the employer has to implement that pressure downward to the employee who doesn't follow the policy. I think many of their coworkers are going to get pissed off with that person and say, what are you doing, right? Yeah, I think so. so. So I think that these are things that kind of will work themselves out to some degree without an employer necessarily stepping in and, you know, imposing its power. I, I really think that uh, if if I worked in a workplace with 30 people and 29 people were following and one wasn't, I'd probably give that one person a piece of my mind. Uh, one from Jerry here listening to our program, bkelly at 900chml.com for emails on this. Uh, when employers start calling people back, is there a, a way, a methodology that they use to do this? I guess if it's a unionized job, there is a protocol, isn't it? Seniority and things of that nature. But uh, maybe give us the union or non-union side of this, too. Can they pick and choose who comes back and when? So that's a very good question, and you raise a very uh, valid point, where in the unionized settings, the employees are always going to have a stronger um voice, a louder voice than those that are not unionized. And, and typically in those situations, there might be uh, provisions carved out of the collective bargaining agreement, which is essentially the contract that governs all employees in the bargaining unit and, and their employment with the employer that says, if people are called back, it has to be done this way, in this order, yada, yada, yada. Um, but when it comes to employers generally and their decision to recall individuals back to work, they have quite a great deal of discretion in bringing people back. So one question we hear all the time is, you know, I'm John Smith and I'm 62 years old. I've worked for the company for 25 years. Can the company recall, you know, Alex and Mike who have been here for four years and who are 30 uh, before me? I have far more seniority than those two people, right? And Mm -hmm. kind of from a logical perspective, you do understand the concern. If you've been somewhere longer, you feel you should come back first. Mm-hmm. But an employer has complete discretion almost to bring people back based on need and based on operational requirements. So if they need someone that has worked less years and doesn't have the seniority as the, uh, another individual, an employer can do that. The only thing an employer can't do is discriminate against people um, based on human rights. So, if, for example, an employer says, well, you know, we aren't bringing people A, B, and C back because they have disabilities and they require accommodation, or we're not bringing this person back um, because they're older um, and strictly from their age, we don't want them back, so we're not going to call back any of the older people, 
that's a concern because that's a violation of the human rights code and that's something an employer certainly cannot do. So unless the the decision-making process involves forms of discrimination, uh, an employer is going to have great latitude in deciding who they want to bring back to work. And I guess evaluation by the employer is going to be key in that. You know, I mean, you know, if it's between you and me and he just says, look, I, I like you both, but Andrew, you're a better employee. You're a more productive employee. Bill, you'll be the next guy, but I got to get him now. They're justified to, to make that kind of an evaluation, are they? Yeah, they're, they're justified in doing so. And uh, it's sad because, you know, a lot of what I see every day are, and, and I wish this didn't happen, but, but it's happening, is employers trying to use COVID-19 to nefariously make decisions about, you know, who they don't want in the workplace, who they do. They might just yeah. have personal beef against someone. They don't like someone's attitude. Um, lately, um, they're not as much of a yes man or yes woman as they would have liked. They're like, oh, forget it. Let's leave this person at home. Um, and uh, maybe we'll call them back later, right? And, and while they're on a layoff, these people... They're not getting severance. They're getting the SERB benefit or the or EI, which is not enough to support themselves. So, uh, you know, it's a very uh, scary time. And any time an employer takes advantage of the situation, it, it ruins it for other employers who are trying to do a, a genuinely decent job. So to your point, if it's simply a matter of I like person A better than person B because they're more productive and, and they're doing a better job, by all means, an employer can bring back uh, person A. Uh, very tumultuous time for an awful lot of people these days as they get those callbacks and uh, and just how this is going to roll out over the next little while. And as we uh, have said with previous segments, not a bad idea to talk to an employment lawyer if you have any questions about this and, and get some clarity on exactly what your rights are as you go through this. Uh, Andrew, always a pleasure. Uh, the webpage, by the way, employmentlawyer.ca, uh, associate with uh, Sanfiru to Mark and LLP. Great folks, and you hear them, of course, every weekend here on CHML. Uh, stay well, my friend, and uh, we'll talk again next Wednesday, okay? Sounds good, Bill. We'll speak then. Take care. Andrew Woldberg, of course, from uh, Samfaru to Markin. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's go back to uh, to the Premier, who uh, t- was teasing us, I guess, with his announcements the other day, and said, standing by on Thursday, there's going to be some really good news. And uh, it obviously has an awful lot to do with phase one of the reopening process. And, uh, well, this is what the Premier said about it. With the progress we've made, I'm confident we can move forward. On Thursday, we will share more details about the next stage of reopening our province. We'll be reopening more low-risk workplaces, seasonal businesses, and essential services. Well, uh, that's expected to be announced tomorrow. Uh, There is uh, one caveat to that, though, and that's the Chief Medical Officer of Health of the Province of Ontario, Dr. David Williams, says he's not confident the province has met the threshold to embark on stage one with the reopening plan. As uh, the good doctor mentioned uh, as in his comments, and they don't do this together like they do down in the States. Uh, the Premier has his conference, and then, of course, the Medical Officer of Health does his. And he says, if I thought we were ready and met the criteria, I would have recommended it, and we haven't done that yet, uh, which is not to say we're not going to get there, but uh, there's a concern, and this is something we've heard from an awful lot of people right now, that in our uh, anxious mood to try to move this economy forward and try to breathe some life back into this, maybe we're moving a little too fast. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Todd Coleman, a Ph.D. assistant professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University. Doctor, great to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me again. 
this what Dr. Williams told us yesterday was a common theme. We've heard this from Tony Fauci down in the States. We've heard this from, well, just about every medical professional that's been involved in this COVID-19, uh, uh, the dealing with it anyway, of course, at the highest levels of government and right on down, uh, that uh, we've got to be cautious about this. Uh, is is and I understand, you know, the argument's always going to be, Doctor, that, well, you know, we've got to get the economy moving too. But I think one of the phrases I heard Dr. Fauci use weeks ago now was he says the economy's not going to get well till people get well. Is that a pretty fair assessment? Yes, I would be uh, inclined to agree with uh, both uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Williams about that. Uh, it doesn't seem like we're in the right spot to be making these uh, plans right now. And, and therein lies the problem, and, and I, I'm, I'm sure you're the same as, as I and just about everybody else here. We, I'd, I'd love to get things opened up again. I'd love to be able to go back to restaurants. I'd love to go to a, a ball game. But, but at the same time, I don't want to be part of a second wave, and they keep warning us that if we just let caution go to the wind here, that that's probably what's going to happen. Yeah, I would be inclined to agree with that. If we're, if we're, we're seeing in terms of the actual numbers of cases, Per day is still relatively high. Um, it's what we were seeing uh, yesterday's number of cases in Ontario, for example, was uh, almost identical to what we saw at the end of March, uh, which is when we were on the upward climb. And reopening right now with still a large number of people who are uh, active cases just seems really counterintuitive, uh, just so that businesses can make some uh, money and arguably for only a temporary amount of time because what might end up just happening is we end up having to go right back into this uh, uh, social distancing and shutdown of everything. What happened to the parameters that were set up? And Way back in March when, when they talked about this and, and they made the announcements, okay, we're going to have to close things down for just a little while. They, at that time, as we recall, and I think you were on the program at that time, Doctor, and, we, and they said, look, at, here's the first thing that has to be met here is we need 14 days with no new cases. Mm-hmm. Nobody's done that yet. We're, we're not there yet. But, but now when you bring that up, they just say, oh, well, yeah, but yeah, that's not really the – unless they're going to – you know, complete that sentence by saying, but we realize that that's not really necessary anymore. It still is necessary, isn't it? It's absolutely necessary. Uh, we have, there There doesn't seem to be a, a, a downward, uh, a really sharp downward trend in the number of cases, which means that people are still interacting with each other, which means that our social distancing measures are not 100%. Uh, and that's exactly what you said. Uh, I would be more comfortable with seeing a few days, a week, two weeks of zero cases or really minimal cases uh, before any considerations are done to reopen uh, businesses to the public. I'm going back again, just looking at some of these things. Of course, you know, you talked about the the physical distancing, and that's still out there. We we're told we're going to have to do that, but but it's it's like somebody who's on a very strict diet and it says, "Okay, look at I've lost 12 pounds. What's what's the matter if I eat a chocolate cake? What's the big deal? <laughs> uh, you, you, you're not supposed to do that. I mean, we, we, you know, we're feeling pretty good that the numbers aren't quite as bad as they had anticipated because we followed the rules, and now we're basically saying, "Well, I guess we can just relax a lot of these rules and start doing this again." I mean. And again, I'm not trying to, you know, spoil the party here. I'm just my concern here is that, you know, if you're a shop owner, for instance, and you say, I really got to get back to business, you know, please, Mr. Premier, let me open my doors. What happens if you do that? You bring everybody back 
and three, four weeks from now, you've got to shut down again because this, they, they've started to spike. That's right. The, the economy is even worse off as a result of that. And we've seen that happen, haven't we? Yeah, exactly. And we've seen where uh, in the U.S., uh, the prime examples, we've got 50 states that are individually practicing different levels of uh, uh, social distancing and reopening measures. Uh, and we can see they're nowhere near uh, controlling uh, their infection rates. Uh, and it's just not a wise idea to increase the chances of infected people coming into contact with each other without seeing zero community transmissions happening. I, I saw, and again, we're picking up little two bits of information, I guess, about every day, but I guess it was one of the conf- press conferences that uh, Governor Cuomo in New York was uh, having the other day, and, and, of course, he's got his medical team sitting right there at the table with him, and if, and if he doesn't know the answer, he says, well, Dr. So-and-so, you take this. I mean, I, I like people that rely on science. I get a lot of respect for Governor Cuomo and others who are doing that very same thing. But they said, you know, one of the things they've learned here is this virus can stay alive for, I think he said, like two to three days if it's on a, on a piece of metal, like a, a door handle or something like that. I mean, we're, we, we, we can't get cavalier about this, can we? No, exactly. Uh, it, it's not the time to start uh, thinking, uh, relaxing any type of measures. Uh, and if if the the probability of it being on surfaces for two to three days is in fact true, which in some instances we've seen testing done where it seems to be the case, uh, then we shouldn't be uh, surprised if we start reopening things and uh, people start uh, getting reinfected just by simply uh, touching surfaces that other infected people have touched. It, doctor, is there an inevitability to this that as we start to co-mingle again and go out there and, and start, even if we do try to maintain some sense of, of physical distancing, the fact that we're out there in numbers and, and, and we are going to be closer together than we're probably supposed to be at this, is, is it just a, a given that there's going to be an increase in, in the number of cases? I would say it's a really, really high chance of it. It's, it's just simple uh, math. Uh, you're looking at the chance of uh for me i'll give you an example uh being at home uh i have pretty much zero percent chance of being infected because i haven't really come into contact with anyone for several weeks Uh, i start going out i go to the restaurant i'm in contact with 20 people who are also sitting in the restaurant that just automatically increases the chance that i come into contact with one of the one in five uh, on the low end estimate of people who are low symptom or asymptomatic. Uh, and then this just restarts the whole thing all over again. So it's kind of like going back to basics. I mean, let's, let's, you know, pull out those press releases from a couple of months ago that said, this is what we need to do. And we're not there yet. As a matter of mm-hmm. fact, I don't know that there's any jurisdiction in North America anyway, that has achieved that 14 days with no new cases. I mean, there might be a couple. I think Prince Edward Island has done pretty well, but it's a relatively small population. But here in the, in the GTA, the southern Ontario area, uh, we're still one of the hot spots here in, in Canada, aren't we? With the highest number, anyway. That's right. We It was somewhere approximately, I think, 350 cases uh, yesterday. And from the estimates that I've seen, we're still sitting at 4,000 active cases of uh, COVID. It just takes two of those to be out in public uh, to and still shedding the virus to infect more people. Does it muddy the waters, though, when you have 
two sets of people giving you advice here. And, and I, I mentioned on my commentary earlier this morning, I, I, I've been happy about the fact that, by and large, it seems as if most governments, at least in Canada anyway, are making their judgments based on the medical evidence that they're getting from their medical officers of health and, and, and others that are involved in this. Uh, but as soon as you start saying, well, yeah, but the economy has got, it's got to take precedence, uh, you know, you're getting one message from the, from the medical field and one from the political field right now. It's confusing to people right now because, I, you know, the, you can't serve two masters. One has to take precedence over the other, doesn't it? That's right. And it, it really shows uh, in some ways the priorities that each of them uh, are holding uh, in terms of what's happening with the scientists, for the most part, valuing human health and life uh, over uh, short-term uh, economic gains on the political end. Additionally, on the part of the politicians uh, and the, the decision makers, we're getting really confusing messages because in some cases, the messages change from day to day. We've seen some people, uh, Premier Ford, for example, saying, yeah, it's okay to reopen, uh, then saying, no, we're not there yet. Uh, back and forth and back and forth. And I think uh, there should be a little bit more of a, an understanding on their part how their decision-making is actually made on scientific basis rather than simply, okay, I have a lot of people uh, telling me uh, that their businesses are suffering, so I'm going to sacrifice uh, human health and, and uh, life to allow for that to reopen. Yeah, and you know, if you don't do this, uh, Mr. Politician, I'm not going to vote for you. Well, you're not going to vote for her if you're in intensive care someplace either. I mean, you got to consider that. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I, th I think the thing that concerns me a lot about what I'm reading and, and hearing from the experts, and I don't mean the politicians, I'm talking about the medical experts, doctor, is we have to keep in context here that this is still a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, this virus... Uh, it really, we've only known for what about four months, five months at, at the most, and and probably not even then. I mean, for a lot of us, it was February that uh, that it came to to prominence that we said, "My God, what is this?" And and even experts like yourselves, you, they're learning more about this every day. You know, it's it's not just a respiratory thing anymore. We understand that. Uh, you know, we've heard the stories now about the Kawasaki syndrome and what it can do to mm -hmm. children. And yes, it can have long-term effects. And now we're starting to get evidence uh, from some of the folks that are doing research, uh, like yourselves, that uh, there could be damage to other organs too that uh, heretofore we didn't know about. So we're learning, and with all of this knowledge, and it's never good. Nobody's. I have yet to have anybody say, you know what, we, it's it's okay. It's not as 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 you know contagious as we thought. No, it is. It's more contagious than we initially thought. Mm -hmm. I, I thought yeah. we'd be more trepidatious about this instead of simply saying, oh, I, I think it's time to lift the curtain now. Yeah, it seems like there's a, a real big disconnect between what the actions and the suggestions on the part of the decision makers in reopening the economy with the facts about this virus that, uh, like you said, is largely unknown at this point and it seems as if uh, uh every day we learn something new uh like the the infections in children that you were mentioning mm -hmm. um and the the long-term effects that we still don't know because the majority people with uh COVID-19 have only been living with the virus uh, uh for a couple months uh they may have recovered but we still don't know the long-term effects of of what's happened there we're seeing uh long-term lung damage for example and things like that, which is also going to affect uh, our economy because there may be some people who just can't go back to work. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and and that's the concern, and that's the problem right now because there's an awful lot of things that are going on. I mean, you know, the one of the obvious questions we were told is, well, you know, the people that do get the virus, even if it's only mild symptoms, typically, I guess, the the, the medical protocol it would would be, well, yeah, you'll develop antibodies, and you should probably. Uh, not get it again. You know, you'll build up enough antibodies, you'll be able to fight it off. We don't know that about COVID-19 yet, do we? No, we don't. And some of the estimates that have been made are that just because you've recovered doesn't mean you can't get it in the future. Uh, some of the, the the literature with other coronaviruses suggests that immunity only lasts one to two years. If we're in this for uh, several years, this just means that we're seeing multiple waves of infection uh, if we keep allowing this to circulate in uh, society. The the vaccine, I guess, is not the panacea because, I mean, again, it's not going to work on everybody. It's going to work in varying degrees on anybody. But that's that's really what we're shooting for here to try to, to build up some barriers here against this virus, isn't it? Yeah, it is. However, uh, like you said, it's not the panacea, uh, but and we also need to consider that it's really highly unlikely that we're going to be able to uh, vaccinate every single person uh, with this. Uh, that means in fa- uh, vaccines for billions, uh, which is highly improbable. And it's not going to happen anytime soon. I mean, I know some politicians down in the states were saying hopefully they were going to have this ready and to go by September for the new school year. Uh, I, I don't know what you know, color the sky is in their dream world, but that's any doctor will tell you that's not, just not going to happen. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 really up to this point. The vaccines, the, there are dozens and dozens being tested, but there's never a guarantee that uh, uh, the vaccine will work. There has never been a vaccine for a coronavirus, so we actually don't know what this is going to work. Uh, in terms of what it looks like in mass distribution, whether it actually works altogether. Um, there's some other potentials for, we saw in the news, uh, uh, antiviral treatments. But again, those aren't uh, uh, something that we'll be distributing widely uh, for a little time yet. Well, we'll see what the Premier has to say about this tomorrow, whether or not he heeds the advice of, uh, of Dr. Williams and uh, obviously the ramifications that if there's uh, actions and reactions to just about everything we do. Uh, Doctor, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks again for the time today. Really appreciate it. Yes, thanks again for having me. Take care. Dr. Todd Coleman, uh, of course, uh, Assistant Professor at the, the Department of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.